want to invite you to open your Bibles to uh, Luke chapter 24. And uh, if you didn't bring a Bible, we say this every Sunday, we should have some black ones near you in the seat racks, unless you're in the front row, they should be near you there. And if you want to pull one of those out, we're going to look at page 738, Luke 24. I just need to ask you to mark that place because we're going to come back to that a little bit later in the message. Luke 24. Now, while you're turning there, let me just say that we're starting, as Steve already said, this series called Family Values this morning. And as we think about family values, I want want to just ask you to think about this with me. Uh, When I was a youth pastor, I had the opportunity to visit uh, in a lot of the youth's homes. Uh, The parents would sometimes have me in, and they would talk to me about different things. And so I had a chance to see the different tone that's set in different families by what they value. I remember one family... The parents, early in their life, had gotten excited about reaching out to people in other countries that didn't yet know or have heard about Jesus. So in their passion, when they had three kids, their three kids got that same desire. They would go to conferences, they'd go to camps up in Wisconsin, and then eventually all three of the kids went on short-term mission trips with their parents, and eventually they went on their own. One of them became a full-time missionary, and you can trace it all back because the parents valued that. So I've seen some homes where people value the arts. I've seen other homes where people value sports. I've seen other homes, a lot of different things. And what that does is it shapes the decision-making that goes on in that family. It shapes the conversations that happen around the table, bedtime. It shapes even the way money gets spent and planning gets done. You see, those values shape a lot of things. Now, in a similar way, You and I have seen how that can be positive or negative, but also not just in regular families and homes, this takes place in churches. I don't know if you know this, but when we read the New Testament, the Bible, there is not just one New Testament church. When people say, we're going to be like the New Testament church, I always want to say, which one? I'm not trying to be smart like it because there's so many different churches, and if you read them, you'll find that by emphasizing different things, that were good, it set a different tone for their church. For instance, in Antioch, we find out that that church emphasized being a mission-sending church, kind of like that family I was referring to. And then in Philippi, the Philippian church, they were known for their generosity. Then there was this group of people called the Berean Christians in Acts 17, says that they eagerly received the scripture even more than some other churches in the way that they searched the scriptures daily. See, different tone, different churches. So the question on the table is, what kind of values do we have as a church? And if you're following along, every church has a set of values that sets a unique tone. Every church has a set of values that sets a unique tone. Have you ever noticed that? Some of you have told me that you've had the opportunity to visit lots of different churches over the years in your life. Maybe you're actually doing that right now. Maybe you're visiting churches. You're trying to figure out what to do. Maybe you've moved here. Maybe it's time for you to make a different you know, choice. But the point is, is if you visit many churches, you'll notice, wow, that had a different tone than that one. And you wonder, what, 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 what's that all about? And a lot of it, you can trace it back to what that church emphasizes, what that church values. So this isn't a rah-rah Cherry Hills thing. This is a time in the next eight weeks that we're just going to look at what has God been teaching us over the last 110 years as a church? What, what are the things that keep rising to the top, that keep being valuable, not just to us, but in the generations before? So if you turn your notes over on the back side, 
we've listed these, and I think we're going to be uh, listing these every Sunday during these eight weeks. And I want you to see our nine family values. I want you to notice a couple things. First of all, I just said we're going to be studying this for eight weeks, and there's nine values. What gives? Well, actually, we'll combine a couple of them, and we'll come to that later. But also, I want you to notice that these are not in any particular order. So you may say, well, how come like this one isn't at the top? Well, we didn't put them in a particular order, but what I want you to notice is that after the first value, every one of the other values that we list will be connected, will grow out of our understanding and appreciation of the scripture. So today, let's just focus on, as we prepare for communion, let's just focus on this first value. And I want to invite you to read that first line, we value the Bible, and then also I want you to read the next two lines out loud with me, if you would. Let's do it together, full voice. We value the Bible because it is God's unchanging word to us. We seek to submit to his life-giving teaching and authority in every area of our lives, even when it's painful. Now, if you want to turn your notes back over, what I want you to see is that by naming our values, we can live them more intentionally. By naming our values, we can live them more intentionally. I remember sometimes when I'd visit different homes, the families would actually say, you know, this is really important to us. And even though I was an outsider, even though I was a guest, by them saying that, I remember thinking, oh, that really helps me understand why you guys put this emphasis on this or why you go after this with your time and your decision-making, your conversations. And what we want to do in these eight weeks is we just want to say, not only for you newcomers, we hope this makes you feel more welcome. And this actually may help you on whether or not you should keep coming to our church or go look for a church that has different values that you feel like is more in line. Because there's a lot of good churches in Springfield that they may emphasize some different things more than others, and it just sets a different tone. But what I also want you to understand is this, is that when we can live more intentionally, then this actually can become part of our life, not just on Sunday mornings. Um, Look at this quote by Andy Stanley, if you would. Whatever gets celebrated gets repeated. Whatever gets celebrated gets repeated. Think of with me. If a family emphasizes good grades, what gets repeated? Or at least pursued? Good grades. If a family emphasizes doing your very best, what gets pursued, repeated? Doing your very best, right? So it all sets the tone. And what we want to do is be the kind of church that by holding these up, by celebrating and saying, we celebrate these particular things in the hope that they can get multiplied and repeated many times, not just on Sundays, but throughout the week and in many other people's lives. And that's where we're going with this series. So let's talk about value number one. We value the Bible. I want to say this at the very beginning, and that's this. We value the Bible in spite of of objections to the Bible. Here's why I say that. When you say we value the Bible, there's all kinds of possibilities of being misunderstood. First of all, it can sound proud, and that's not what we mean. We actually value the Bible uh, in many ways, in the most humble way we can. We're just so grateful for the Bible. But the second reason I say that we value the Bible in spite of objections is because we're not unaware that there's many very smart, intelligent Uh, good people in the world that do not believe the Bible is worth valuing or even taking seriously. So we don't want to say that, you know, look look at us and everybody else is done. That's not what we mean. We understand their objections, but what we've come to learn is that there are also answers for many of those objections. And we value the Bible in spite of the objections. So here's what I want to do. I want to tell you why we value the Bible 
just several reasons. Then I want to talk to you about some of the popular objections that we do have to contend with. And then I want to talk to you about how we can live more intentionally if we want to value the Bible in the coming days. So first of all, why do we value the Bible? I'll just give you three. There's more reasons than this, but here it is. First, we value the Bible for its unique authority and revelation. We value the Bible for its unique authority and revelation. Okay? Now, uh, if you would, um, just read that first gray box with me. This is one of Jesus' disciples that wrote this years later. Here's what he said. Let's read it together. For we did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses. Then look, at it goes on later in that same uh, letter, 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21. Here's what he says. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. For prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. What this is claiming is that the Bible is not just a human document. That the Bible has had an incredible influence by the Holy Spirit superintending how that was written. Therefore, as 2 Timothy 3.16 says, it is God-breathed. It carries a different ring of authority and truth. It is God's special revelation. It's God revealing himself to us in the word of God in both the Old and New Testament. Second reason we value the Bible is that by it, God can guide and make us wise. We value the Bible because by it, God can guide and make us wise. Some of you know the famous Bible verse, Psalm 119, 105. Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. How many times many of us have found that when we got all confused or when we were numb inside, that God's word actually brought us back out of that fog. It became a direction for us in a confusing world. And we have found so many times that it has guided us and it has many times made us wiser than we would be on our own. The third reason that we value the Bible, and this is the most important one, is that it points us to Jesus and how to know him. We value the Bible because it points us to Jesus and how to know him. Sometimes, if you're honest with yourself, the Bible is such an overwhelming book to deal with. It's 66 books in one from all different backgrounds, 40 different authors, over 1,500 years, three different languages that it was originally written in, and it can be overwhelming. And some people say, like, how am I supposed to understand the scriptures? But when you understand that the Old Testament was all written to prepare for what God was going to do in the New Testament through Jesus, then you begin to understand that God has been working all the time in a redemptive way through redemptive history, and it's all about Jesus, and not only what he's done, but what he will do and can do in your life and mine. And so when you and I understand that, it can really help. Sometimes you'll hear popular things said where like, hey, are we supposed to do this, this, and this ceremonial law or this kind of obscure thing? And what I want you to always understand is that Christians have always interpreted the Old Testament through the New Testament. Therefore, what things carried over into the New Testament and continued? What you'll notice is that while the ceremonial laws did not carry over and continue, the moral law of God did. And many of the same wise things that he said were reaffirmed by Jesus and the disciples. So just know that that's important. Now, here's where Luke 24 comes in. Are you ready? I want you to notice 
that on your message notes, I've listed Luke 1, 1 through 4. And that, if you want to read that sometime on your own, you can. But this is Dr. Luke telling how he did a careful investigation before he ever shared this gospel. And he talks about eyewitnesses. And so we're going to come back to that later. But notice now he picks up in this last chapter of his gospel something that happened on Easter morning. And I'll start in verse 13. It says, Now, that same day, two of them, two of Jesus' followers, were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. Notice the details. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. Jesus' crucifixion, his burial, his resurrection. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them named Cleopas asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know these things that have happened there in these days? I always smile myself smile a little bit on this next line. What things? He asked. <clears throat> it was only about him. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since it all took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it was just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. Now listen to verse five, 25. He said to them, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if they were going farther. But they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it is nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. And when he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. Verse 32, they asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? Then drop down to verse 44. He said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. And then would you read verse 25 with me? It's the second gray box on your notes. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. Now, what I want you to see is uh, something here is this. They're wrestling with the scriptures. They, they cannot put together what has happened and what the scriptures say. They're really confused. It's not that they haven't read the scriptures. It's not that they're not trying to understand, but they are struggling. And they, Jesus comes along, and Jesus opens their eyes and helps them understand he doesn't make things up that weren't there. He helps them see what was already there. That's a fascinating thing to me. It means that he says, look, you're not going to learn what God's up to apart from the scriptures. You're going to have to understand what the scriptures have been saying all along, and you need to be able to see it clearly. You're missing it. And he helps them see it's about him. 
Now, before we look at the objections, I want to tell you one more thing. Did you know that even Billy Graham wrestled with the scriptures? Some of us think, oh, you know, know, when we talk about we value the Bible, that it's just one of those things that all of us at Cherry Hills go, well, of course. Of course we do. It's, It's just, yeah. But most people in our world go, wait a second. Can you be a thinking person? Are you kissing your brains away to believe in the Bible? I mean, that's just the honest truth, friends. We need to understand that these objections are real for many people. And Billy Graham had a friend named Charles Templeton. And let me just read to you from The Case for Faith by Lee Strobel. Here's what he writes. The year was 1949. 30-year-old Billy Graham was unaware that he was on the brink of being catapulted into worldwide fame and influence. Ironically, as he readied himself for his breakthrough crusade in Los Angeles, he found himself grappling with uncertainty, not over the existence of God or the divinity of Jesus, but over the fundamental issue of whether he could totally trust what his Bible was telling him. In his autobiography, Graham said he felt as if he were being stretched on a rack. Pulling him toward God was Henrietta Mears, the bright and compassionate Christian educator who had a thorough understanding of modern scholarship and an abounding confidence in the reliability of the scriptures. Yanking him the other way was Graham's close companion and preaching colleague, 33-year-old Charles Templeton. The story about Charles Templeton that gets filled in here is that Charles Templeton had been a preaching partner with Billy Graham throughout Europe. They had been roommates. They got very close. Charles Templeton, the more he read the scriptures and the more he saw the tragedies in the world, could no longer believe that the Bible was reliable, that it was no longer written that God was involved in scriptures like that. And so he began to say, I don't believe these. And he actually began to challenge Billy Graham. He resigned, Charles Templeton resigned his ministry and he eventually became a writer and a commentator. But notice this, here's what happens. Now there was skeptical Templeton a counterpoint to the faith-filled Henrietta Mears tugging his friend Billy Graham away from her repeated assurances that the scriptures were trustworthy. Billy, you're 50 years out of date, he argued. People no longer accept the Bible as being inspired the way you do. Your faith is too simple. Templeton seemed to be winning the tug of war. If I was not exactly doubtful, Graham would recall, I was certainly disturbed. He knew that if he could not trust the Bible, he could not go on. The Los Angeles crusade, the event that would open the door to Graham's worldwide ministry, was hanging in the balance. Graham searched the scriptures for answers. He prayed, he pondered, and finally, in a heavy-hearted walk in the moonlit San Bernardino Mountains, Bernardino Mountains, everything came to a climax. Gripping a Bible, Graham dropped to his knees and confessed that he couldn't answer some of the philosophical and psychological questions that Templeton and others were raising. I was trying to be on the level with God, but something remained unspoken, he wrote. I'll come back to that, but I just want you to know that Billy Graham wasn't the only one that struggled. It's a fascinating thing to me that I'm one of the people that's being your teacher because my whole story, it was my struggle with Scripture, and I'll come back to that later too, but I just want you to know that when we talk about objections, I hope that no one in this room hears us poking fun at people that have these objections. These objections are likely to occur to your mind, and if they do, they need to be reckoned with. And there is nothing 
in our church family that wants to short-circuit the process that God may lead you through to get to know him. He is not asking you to kiss your brains goodbye. He is not asking you to do something that's just based on feeling or is not reasonable. He's asking you to do something based on solid bedrock evidence. And so what are some of the objections? How do we look at them? Objection number one. Some say the Bible can't be trusted because it's full of errors. Some say the Bible can't be trusted because it's full of errors. Now, I would be the first one to tell you that there are definitely apparent contradictions in the Bible. There are definitely things that you say, how does that square with that? But here's been my experience over the years. I've had the opportunity to be with brilliant people on both sides, one that makes the objections and also those that have been able to give reasonable answers to these objections, and I've been amazed by the answers. Let me just give you one example. And by the way, you may want to write this date down in case you want to think about this subject more. It's not necessarily the most compelling thing you'll ever hear, but it is what I preached on back in 2008 when I talked about reasons for believing the Bible and went into more detail. It's from April of 2008. 2008 on our website. You can look that up if you want to look and listen to that. But here's what I shared then and I can share with you now. When you think about how whether or not the Bible is historically reliable, I mean, is it based on history? Is it factual or is it just something made up, you know, make-believe? You need to understand many scholars say there's four things that are really impressive. One is manuscripts, one is archaeology, one is prophecy, and one is statistics, maps. M-A-P-S. And so when you think about the manuscripts, the archaeological, the prophecy, and also the statistics, it's just incredible. Let me give you a statistic. Did you know that when we think about documents that we study today in university campuses like Plato and Aristotle, we accept them as written by the authors, but did you know that we have about 10 copies of each one of those? 10 copies. It'd be great if we had at least 10 copies of the New Testament, wouldn't it? Wouldn't that be a coup? Did you realize that we have over 14,000 manuscripts or pieces of the New Testament by which to compare the wording because it's been passed down? A lot of people feel like a lot of errors have been made. And did you realize out of the 184,590 words in the New Testament, only 400 are even disputed? And none of them have anything to do with a major teaching in Christianity. Is that not incredible? Therefore, when you read this, God has overseen this book like few other books. And some people say, well, what about the Old Testament? Study 1947, Dead Sea Scrolls, and the discovery of those was monumental to show how carefully these have been preserved. Friends, it's an amazing thing. Again, I'm not saying this will answer everybody's doubts. I'm simply saying there are reasonable answers to objections. Second objection, objection number two, New Testament, that's what NT stands for, New Testament documents were written long after Jesus lived. Now this is something that was made popular again by Dan Brown and some of the novels that he writes. And even though people know that's a novel, they still accept sometimes these historical you know, objections or theoretical objections for how the New Testament was written. I mean, think about it. If they wrote this stuff long after it happened, nobody can argue. But what if they were written within one or two generations of when they happened, when eyewitnesses were still alive? And that's exactly what you find. Did you know that the first letter in the New Testament was written 15 to 20 years after Jesus died and that most of the Gospels were written between 25 and 40 years after Jesus was here on the earth? 
What does that mean? What that means is, is that if these guys were making stuff up, they would have been shouted down. They would have been able to easily show the tomb. They would have been easily able to show different things. Now, again, there's answers to everything I'm saying. I'm not trying to eradicate all the objections. I'm simply trying to get them on the table. You and I need to struggle with this if this is going to be something that keeps us from valuing the Bible. But you just need to know that no matter what someone says so carelessly, the research will show that there are at least evidences that show exactly the opposite. Second, third objection that I want you to see is the New Testament doesn't really tell what happened. This again has been made popular by Dan Brown and other things in our popular age, but scholars have been saying this for years. What they mean is this. The New Testament uh, was written in such a way much later so that the Christians who wanted to build up their case and actually get world power could do it in such a way that they could show Rome that they were a bigger power than any other power and they could set up Jesus so that he would be the most compelling person to follow and it would make them more powerful. All I want to tell you is this. If that's what they were about, then why did they write such silly, uh, embarrassing stuff about themselves? (laughs) Why did Peter show that he doubted Jesus and denied him three times? Why did they actually include, as we see in this, Luke 24, that women were the ones that saw Jesus? You'd never want to do that in that ancient time to build your case because women weren't even allowed to give a testimony in the court of law in those days. Why? Because Jesus knew that women and men were both reliable to give testimonies and it didn't matter whether or not that was a popular view at the time. The point is, is that if that's the case, there's all kinds of at least questions that have to at least be asked. The last one, though, is probably the one that has the most teeth for our culture, and it's the one that really got me. The Bible is out of date and no longer applies. We've progressed. The Bible is out of date and no longer applies because think of it, after all, we're one of the smartest generations that's ever lived. We have more access to knowledge. We, can, we know we have a bigger picture than everything. And all I want to say is this. When you and I see something in the scripture that collides with our culture or that offends our cultural sensibilities, we need to stop and ask, does that close the book? Does that end any reason to look at the scriptures? Or might it, in fact, be even more proof that God superintended that? And that's why we're offended is because our culture may not be as accurate about everything as we think. Now, here's three questions that I've found helpful, and you may too. You may want to write these down. They're kind of long sentences, so if you don't, that's okay. But here's the first one. For instance, some of you are here and you're saying, you know, I don't even know if I can make it through the Bible because there's several things that have just so turned me off or so offended me, or I don't even know if I believe this stuff because it's just impossible to believe that. Well, what if you were to read the four Gospels this next few months? Be a first-hander. Instead of just criticizing the Bible or writing it off, I've found that many people that object to the Bible have never really studied it that much. Sometimes they have. Sometimes they may even feel like they know it better than me. What I'm saying is, have you at least been a first-hander? Have you at least you given it a fair try? Because as you do, here's some questions that may help you hang in there when you're struggling. One, is it possible the Bible isn't saying what I think it's saying? Is the Bible... Is it possible the Bible isn't saying what I think it's saying? Let me go back to Luke 24. Do you notice what happened in that account with Jesus? Why were they struggling? Because they 
thought the Bible said the Messiah wouldn't have to suffer, suffer. He'd be a triumphal Messiah that would make them look smart for believing in him. But instead, Jesus rebukes them and says, you've been reading the scripture all along. You missed it. The prophets always said he had to be a suffering Messiah. And then he would enter his glory. You just wanted him to enter his glory without having to suffer. You missed it. They thought the Bible was saying something it wasn't. And I've done the same thing. Second question. Is it possible I'm misunderstanding the Bible because of my own cultural blinders? Is it possible I'm misunderstanding the Bible because of my own cultural blinders? Sometimes, again, we don't realize how much we project back onto the scriptures our culture without appreciating the culture that it was written in and also what the people were saying in its original context. And so we will look down on certain things. But I'll tell you, the more that I've begun to understand what the Bible meant and what it means, when there is careful instruction and careful research done, a lot of times it's amazing. Some of you have noticed this on Sundays. You come to a text and you go, I have like no idea what that could possibly mean, but it sounds weird to me based on my culture. But then as we've taught on it, you've gone, oh, I appreciate, I think I was looking at that through my cultural blinders. One more question. Is it possible I'm offended by some biblical text because I believe my cultural moment in history is superior? Now, I need to explain this, but is it possible I'm offended by some biblical text because I believe my cultural moment in history is superior? This basically means this. You know, the people back then, they just, they just weren't as sophisticated. Uh, they, they had to have rules like that or they had to have commands like that because they don't know all that we know. We're more free. We're more sophisticated. We're more you know, progressive. And all we have to do is be careful is if we start to think that we are actually superior to every other generation that's lived before us, we better be careful. I've been reading David McCullough, the historian, a lot in these last few years. And I got to just tell you one example. I, I, he says that a lot of people nowadays say these are the worst times that have ever happened in history. These are the hardest times to live. And in some places it is very hard to live. But he said, if you study history, there's been a lot more difficult times than this. I'll give you an example. When I was reading the book 1776 and I saw that the battle near Princeton, these guys marched through the night in the the snow barefooted because they couldn't afford uniforms or shoes and there was a trail of blood. I remember reading that and going, I'm not sure my generation is superior to that one. I think they may understand some stuff about hard that I don't understand about hard. They may actually be more brilliant. When I read 1776 and realize these guys knew five languages by the time they were 10, I realize I might not be as smart as I thought I was. All I'm trying to say is we just got to be careful we don't read the Bible by putting those things on. One more example. A lot of times the objection is made is that Christianity you know, encourages slavery or it encourages subjugating women. Again, If you and I aren't careful, when we see the word slave in the New Testament, we think of 17th and 1800s slavery, which is terrible. But that's not what it was like in those days. Servants and slaves in those days actually could get free within 15 to 20 years. They actually had the same dress. They didn't stand out. They actually had jobs that were just the same as others. Complete thing I can tell you about. If you want to read more about that, read Timothy Keller's book, The Reason for God, Chapter 7. It's fascinating. It's at least an answer to some of these objections. That's all I would say. At least struggle with it. Now that leads us to this idea. Is how did the struggle work, you know, and how do we live more intentionally? In my life, 
what happened is, is that I had the privilege of being raised in a home where my parents valued the Bible. I mean, my wife did too. We woke up in the mornings and we would see our dads with their Bibles open in the chair before work, reading it humbly. You don't think that marked me? When I saw my dad, even when he made mistakes, the way he responded differently, it changed me. But even though I had that value in my life, I struggled because I, that was great for my dad, but it wasn't true for me. So I learned all the Bible stories backwards and forwards in Sunday school classes and all that, but by the time I was 15, I felt like so much of what the Bible was saying was out of date with my friends, school, work, all this kind of stuff. And so I remember reading one night, because I, I did, I read it every night faithfully, but one night I just had to honestly say to God, God, if this is the book that's supposed to help guide me and help me understand how I'm supposed to live and follow you, you're going to have to open my eyes because I don't understand how this connects. I didn't see any connections. And I didn't know what to expect. I didn't know if there was fireworks. I didn't know what happened. And actually nothing happened for days. I kept reading the Bible. Same old, same old. About a month later, one day as I was reading the Bible one morning, it was like God had put stuff in the Bible while I was asleep. Now, nothing was new. It was still there. It was just that my eyes had been opened to see what I had missed before. And as I began to read, I saw connections that related to my dating life. I saw connections that related to how I handled money, how I handled my body, how I handled my free time. And I remember thinking, this is unbelievable. It was always there. I just never saw it. And I wanted to understand it, but God had opened my eyes. And one of the things he opened my eyes to see the most was my pride and how I could only understand if I would be humble. And he taught me that humility was ultimately what the Bible produces in people if they read it correctly, is this kind of teachable spirit. And so let me just close by saying, how can you and I be more intentional? Last week, Brian gave a great message on challenging us to be in the Bible every day. And I want to piggyback on that. First, if you're a skeptic here, if you're actually questioning, maybe no one else in your family knows this, but you're wondering if the Bible is trustworthy, or you've believed the Bible in the past, but now you're facing a test you've never faced before, and it's shaken you. Here's the question I want to ask. Will I value the Bible enough to wrestle with its place in my life? Will I wrestle with the Bible like Billy Graham did, like I had to, with its place in your life? I mean, what place is the Bible going to have? Just because we say we value the Bible doesn't mean you have to, doesn't mean you will. But the question is, what will you do with it? If not the Bible, then what will you value? What will guide your life? What will be the authority and revelation that you look to for insight and, and following? And so will you at least give it enough? And here's like I said before earlier, what if you were to begin to read all four Gospels and just read them as humbly as you can? Say, I actually think this may be made up. I may think this is nonsense. I'm not even sure if it's true. But God, if you're real, would you please reveal yourself to me through your word? What would happen if you at least valued it enough to do that? Second question is, will we, well, we as a church family value the Bible each day in our homes. You know, I don't doubt that some of us value the Bible now. It's pretty easy to do it when you're in a group and other people are opening the Bible. And maybe you have enough respect for the Bible that you at least say, okay, I'll at least listen to a message on it. And you know, that's good for Sundays. But here's what I want to ask. Like, do your kids know the Bible is valuable to you? And if you don't have kids, do some of your friends or other family members your coworkers, do they have any clue that the Bible is important to you because they can tell that it's made its way into your home? 
when we were younger, my wife and I, we found some tremendous um, messages that we have shared, and I can always tell you later, that we shared with our kids so they could listen to the Bible every night in a fun-loving way. They tell us to this day it's still marking them. But part of that was because our, we had a value for the Bible in our home that was at least high enough. Some of you say, well, of course, you're a pastor. Hey, I didn't know I was going to be a pastor. That happened before I ever knew I was going to be a pastor. I just saw the power of valuing in our homes. What if you were to start each day by opening it or at least think about his word? Maybe your dinnertime conversations, your bedtime conversations, it could change. The last question is, will we value the Bible by doing what God says? Will we value the Bible by doing what God says? And this is the elephant in the room for me. (laughs) It's one thing for me to say, we value the Bible. And then the Bible challenges me. It points out something in my life that's contradictory. It points out an attitude that's wrong. And I go, "Mm, I'd rather value that attitude than the Bible. What God's saying. But you know, that's where we can learn together. So here's, I'll close. I told you about Billy Graham's struggle. You know what happened? Eventually in his life, here's what happened. He said, at last the Holy Spirit freed me there on my knees to say, Father, I'm going to accept this as your word by faith. I'm going to allow faith to go beyond my intellectual questions and doubts, and I will believe this to be your inspired word. Rising from his knees, tears in his eyes, Graham said he sensed the power of God as he hadn't felt for months. Not all my questions were answered, but a major bridge had been crossed. In my heart and mind, I knew a spiritual battle in my soul had been fought and won. And for Graham, it was a pivotal moment. For Templeton, it was a bitterly disappointing turn of events. History knows what would happen to Graham in the succeeding years. He would become the most persuasive and effective evangelist of modern times, including being in the halls of Harvard and Cambridge and Oxford and other places, even though he was a simple man. But what would happen to Templeton? Decimated by doubts, he resigned from the ministry and moved back to Canada where he became a commentator and novelist. And I might add, he died a few years ago still believing the Bible was unreliable. Now let me say this. Some of you have seen the movie Unbroken. And I've heard it's well done. If you haven't read the book, then I want to tell you the rest of the story. Louis Zamperini after he got done with the Japanese prison camp where he had been so abused by the bird, would eventually come back to the United States and be racked with unforgiveness and bitterness. It was ruining his life. His wife was scared for him but invited him to go to the Billy Graham crusade. He resisted. But when he came in the Billy Graham crusade, it just happened to be in Los Angeles in 1949. And in that crusade, He said it was like God came to his seat as Billy Graham faithfully preached the word and God showed him that his main problem was unforgiveness. And he knew that unless Jesus Christ came into his life and gave him the power to forgive, he would be ruined the rest of his life. And he trusted Christ in 1949 and God miraculously gave him the power to forgive his captors and friends. That guy just died. And he died believing the scriptures were reliable. Which way are you going to go? I'm so thankful for our church family. I'm so thankful for the Sunday school teachers that believe the Bible can be trusted even though we have questions, even though we don't understand everything. We believe that God can use his word and we want to submit our lives to him and what he's saying.
So I want to invite you to prepare for communion. And here's how I want to prepare for communion. Did you know that we practice communion because of the directions given to us in 1 Corinthians 11? Let me read these words. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. So during this communion time, here's what I'd like to suggest. How are you valuing the Bible? Is there something that he's been laying on your heart, he's been convicting you of, and he wants you to use this time to confess it and to forsake it and to know his mercy? Because he wants you to remember him and he wants you to remember what he's done in your life and what he can do in your life if you'll give him the power and you'll submit yourself to his life-giving teaching. And this week, I had to practice this. I was riddled with guilt about some stuff for several days that I knew I was putting his finger on. It wasn't that God was guilt-tripping me. I was being obnoxious about something in my attitude. And so early Friday morning, I got up and I wrote Proverbs 28, 13 across a piece of paper and says, he who conceals his sins will not prosper, but whoever confesses them and forsakes them will find mercy. And I just began to pour out to God what was wrong that I was doing and how I wanted him to you know, cleanse me and free me up to do that. And I saw the power of his word examining myself. So use this time. And if you are wondering, should I take it? Just know here's what we do. We pass these trays and they'll come with double cups. If you take it, just know pull out both cups and hold on to them till we can all take it together. You may say, I'm not from this church or I'm brand new. Should I take it? If you've trusted Jesus Christ, even if you're not from our church, please take one of those and remember him. If you haven't yet trusted Christ, do you realize you could actually do that this morning? Maybe you've never thought about it, but you're ready to do that today. Then this could be the first thing you do as a Christian. But if not, let the trays pass. No one will look down on you because we want you to make sure you are real about the process God's taking you through and we'll respect you for it. But think about your relationship with God and where he's taking you. So now the ushers will serve, will serve us.